What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. So this week is the uh, 21st anniversary of the 9-11 attacks that happened in New York. And I can remember it very, very well because I had just arrived in on the island of Barbados. And um, I turned on the TV and sure enough, there were the towers being sort of attacked by the planes and stuff. And uh, so I'm going to get into that a little bit, but I also wanted to reflect on a newspaper headline that I saw over the weekend. And it was talking about how fuel bills here in Ireland. Now, I know that the UK has been going through this already, but they, the, uh, the energy companies or the, the fuel kind of uh, the home heating companies and uh, the gas and electricity companies, they have been warning the government that there is serious price hikes coming down the road and uh, they've been talking about it being costing the average cost per annum now of about 6,000 euro for to heat your home and uh, there's a huge amount of alarm around this because that is getting close to a, a second mortgage in terms of the size of the payments that you're going to have to pay so I thought what I'm going to try and do <laughs> in my creative fashion is to try to pull together these two seemingly completely unrelated topics and try to make something out of them, okay? So you've got the 9-11 anniversary over here and you have these massive fuel hikes and this inflation issue that we're kind of dealing with at the moment. And... Um, I mean, first of all, like to get into the, the, the cost of the, the fuel and the, I mean, we're already all, all of us, uh, and it doesn't even matter what, what country you live in, we all of our, we're all experiencing this massive increase in the, uh, in the cost of living. And so going to the shops costs money, filling your car costs money, and increasingly heating your home or just switching on the electricity and that's going to probably get worse now because Russia has switched off the fuel and uh, so Germany is going through a bit of a panic at the moment and stuff like that and um, so we have a big issue there at the same time we have a housing crisis and we have a situation where it doesn't matter what people do in terms of construction companies and stuff like that you will just simply never be able to catch up with the demand that there is for residential property out there. That's, that's the view at the moment. There is something like 50,000 homes needed per annum here in Ireland um, just to meet demand. And we're currently building about 30,000. So we're way behind the curve and we're just simply not able to catch up. Now, when you take the fuel costs and the fact that it could be like adding a second mortgage to the, to the average household, you have to start wondering. I mean, I'm not going to deny that there is massive demand out there and that supply cannot meet it. But if you are unable to make your payments because your electricity bills or your, you know, your gas bills are coming in at the same time and they are just making it impossible for you to come up with the money, to actually make the payments like something's going to have to give somewhere and what is that what is going to give and and that's the big question and 
you might sort of say, well, it's probably going to be discretionary spending. Like people will stop doing things like going out and stuff, or perhaps they will take longer to replace their car. But I would imagine that what's going to happen is as people look to buy homes, the banks are going to be well aware of this cost of living crisis and they'll start to put a real microscope over your finances just to make sure that you're capable of making the payments. And if you're doing your own calculations and, you know, prior to this, we had a low interest rate environment. Now that the rates have increased, the rates uh, that you're paying on your mortgage will be higher. The, the rates that landlords will be paying on their loans will be higher. And so naturally enough, they're going to want to pass some of that cost on to their tenants. So rents could be pushed up. But when everyone is dealing with all of this cost of living crisis, you wonder what's going to happen. Will people start looking further out of the city, look for cheaper alternative options and stuff like that? That's something that just it could affect prices and it could push back and and as i said this before now i don't like to focus on negative stuff uh, i know the last couple of episodes of this podcast i've been talking about a lot of negative stuff and spooking people to a degree but the reality is is you know we are where we are there there is these economic headwinds that we're facing into and if people can't make payments because they've got all these other costs and stuff like that, then it's definitely going to have some sort of an impact. Unless, of course, salaries start to increase to compensate for this. Um, but if that's the case, then we start getting into more inflation and it becomes kind of this vicious cycle. Now, there's an old saying, don't curse the darkness, go and light a candle. And what it means is stop complaining, stop coming up with all this negative stuff. Instead, let's hear some solutions. So let's stop for a moment and have a think about this and think about what solutions could there be to resolving this issue of affordability and all that kind of stuff. And a few, um, a few days uh, back, I was looking at suggestions from, um, from different people around ways to kind of fight this stuff. But one that really popped into my mind was today when I was thinking about the 9-11 uh, anniversary 21 years on since the Twin Towers were uh, knocked down by the terror attacks in New York. And they were really, really iconic towers. And it got me thinking about high-rise as a possible solution to this housing crisis. And the fact that if you were to build taller, you'd be able to build more you'd be able to get more people living on a single plot of land, which would make the economics maybe stack up a little bit better. And I thought maybe let's go and have a look at that and explore this a little bit today. Um, there is, when you're looking at the, the videos that go back to 9-11, I can remember it so clearly because I credit those, um, like if you, let, let's take a look at, first of all, the impact of high-rise skyscrapers and high-rise buildings on me and personally and my kind of career and stuff. If we go back about three decades now, or even maybe a little bit longer, to when I was a teenager, I actually went to New York City, uh, and it was part of a. It was kind of the first leg of a family holiday that we did as a with my parents, and we flew into New York City, and it was the first time I'd ever been 
to New York City. And we got a cab into the city center and we were staying in a big hotel right in the middle of it. And I can remember that cab ride in looking at the Twin Towers in the silhouette of the Twin Towers when we were crossing one of the bridges into Manhattan. And it was the most incredible experience. I mean, it just had such an impression on me. These massive towers, like towering above everything and dominating the headline, the, the, the skyline the way they did. So this had a massive, massive impact on me as a teenager. And then what happened is we, we checked into our hotel and we actually, the hotels in New York, like depending on where you're staying, can be pretty tall. And I can remember we walked into our room and we were on the 36th floor uh, of this hotel. And it was the tallest I had ever, ever been in, a, uh, in my life. And going up to the window and looking out the window of your hotel room and looking down on, you know, the taxis and stuff down below and the street below. And they looked like tiny little, you know, yellow dots. And it was it was a really, really it made such an impression on me as a teenager. So fast forward, um, we, we went and we looked around the city for a couple of days and I spent the whole time sort of craning my neck up looking at the towers. And um, when I think about that now. What happened to me, I came back from New York City and I just had this obsession with high-rise buildings and I got to learn all about the skyscrapers in New York City and walking all of those streets, like looking up on 50-story buildings and obviously the Twin Towers, they were 100 stories high, but even just 50-story buildings make a massive impression. When you're a young Irish kid and you're used to walking around the streets of Dublin and the tallest building in Dublin was like Liberty Hall, which was 15 or 16 floors tall. The, tw the Twin Towers, I can remember doing the maths when I was a kid and working out that the Twin Towers were seven times taller than the tallest building in Ireland. That if you were to stack Liberty Hall seven times on top of, each, uh, of itself, you would have the same height as one of the towers of the World Trade Center. And it was so big as well, like the volume of each floor of the World Trade Center, it was, you could fit something like 400 Liberty Hall buildings into a single tower of the World Trade Center. It was absolutely mind-blowing. And uh, as I mentioned, anyway, I've said it really, really impacted me. And I went on to become an, an architect and I, tr and I credit that experience of seeing all of this, becoming so mesmerized by these skyscrapers and those height differences and just the scale and the impact. And it really, it, it gave me this kind of like desire to go off and, and be involved in construction and, and to try to do this kind of thing. So came back, became an architect and obviously went on to become the developer and I ended up where I am today. But getting back to, you know, thinking about solutions to the housing crisis, the thought occurred to me that, you know, perhaps high rise could offer a solution to the housing crisis. And what we are looking at today is, you know, with inflation and construction costs and delays and all of this kind of stuff that's happening, the rising cost of living, everything like that. If you buy a site and you can put four houses on it, like, but the alternative is maybe putting 20 apartments on it, uh, on a building of say four floors, 
And that's all fine and well, but what if you could put 200 apartments on that very same site um, on a, say, a 40 floor building? Suddenly it starts to make a little bit more sense from a maths point of view, surely, doesn't it? And, um, and it, so if you could build more, would it bring the cost down of you know, property prices? If like sites are selling for what they're selling at the moment, based on the economics of being able to put maybe 20 apartments or whatever it is. But if you could build 200 apartments, would that mean that you could actually sell the apartments cheaper? Would it mean that prices would be lower and so the banking and all that kind of stuff would reduce? And then what would happen from a social and political point of view? I mean, socially, what's it like living in, in and around high-rise buildings? And obviously, there's a lot of politics involved in all this kind of decisions and stuff. So look, to properly analyze this, we need to kind of go back in history a little bit. And I thought what I'd do is I would talk about the history of high-rise or the history of the skyscraper. And to do that, we've got to kind of go back to the 1850s. And like, let's not, I won't dwell on this for too long, but if we go way back to the 1855 or thereabouts, what actually made high-rise construction possible was the advent of steel. Um, prior to this date, there was a thing called pig iron, and it was, you know, kind of soft steel, basically. And what they managed to do was they managed this new, pro uh, this new process, um, and I think it was Bessemer steel that the, um, the, the billionaire who went on to become this kind of philanthropist, um, his name escapes me right now, but Bessemer steel was his company and he went and he created you know the steel and when they suddenly realized that if you're building a t you know a, a building using traditional bricks and masonry and timber floors and all that kind of stuff it doesn't go up very high you know before the weight is so great that the foundations and stuff can't take it anymore and when the steel was created when this high strength steel that actually weighed very little. When that was created, they suddenly realized that, you know what we can actually do? We can actually build much, much higher um, because it's a, it's a lightweight structure, even though it's all the strength of steel, it's very lightweight. So buildings started to go up higher. Now, the problem is they can only go up so high because it's only so many floors you can go up yourself before your legs get too tired to kind of want to go up any higher. And it was around 1859 in Germany that Otis was created. And the founder of Otis was Mr. Otis himself. He invented the elevator. And that was a game changer because all of a sudden you could actually go up. And um, he created the safety elevator, I think it was called at the time. And with the advent of this and the advent of steel, all of a sudden you got into a situation where you could go up much, much higher than traditionally had ever been considered viable for buildings. So 1855 in Chicago, this is the first, this is recognized as the kind of the, the first tall building um, in history. And that was a, a, an office building of 10 stories in Chicago. And it was called the Chicago Insurance Company or something like that, I can't remember. But it kicked off a a kind of a height race between Chicago and New York City. And what they had was this kind of race back and forth, trying to outdo one another. And each and the city wanted 
to hold the title of the tallest building or the, the, the home of the tallest building. And um, of course, this wasn't driven by the city itself. It was driven by the, uh, the developers that were the ones who were building this. But they wanted to bring the, I mean, the cup or the, the medal home to their city. And so in 1902, that was the really the big kind of rec well-recognized building for being the tallest was the Flatiron Building in, uh, in downtown kind of, or not downtown, but midtown Manhattan. And that is a 22-story building. Now, it's really iconic in its shape. Uh, 285 feet tall, 87 meters. And it was the first of kind of many towers as they kind of went back and forth between Chicago and New York, kind of trying to outdo one another. In 1913, only a couple of years, like 10 years later, the Woolworths building was built in downtown. And the Woolworths building, to anyone who knows Manhattan, it's a really spectacular building. It actually looks a little bit like a cathedral. And it's, um, it's 55 stories tall. And it has a um, 792 feet is its height. So that was, you know, a real moment in time when it was kind of like, whoa, look at how tall we're able to build now. But just 15 years later, the Chrysler building was built. And the Chrysler building was at the time the tallest and it went to 77 stories and the Chrysler building was a race between the Chrysler uh, building and then down in downtown Manhattan there was 40 Wall Street and the two buildings were going up next to at the very very same time the Chrysler building was going to be 925 feet and the uh, 40 Wall Street building was going to be 927 feet so there was two feet in the difference between these two buildings and what was done by the Chrysler building the architect or the developer in the Chrysler building what he did was he hid this huge big spire stainless steel spire of 130 feet high and he hid it in the construction of the roof and so when it finally came to the completion of these two buildings when the announcement why the 40 Wall Street was now the tallest building in the world at 927 feet, uh, Chrysler went and lifted this 130 foot spire through the roof of the building and suddenly they were much taller. They were, I think, 1,046 feet. And so celebrations all around um, for now having the tallest building in the world. It was pretty short-lived because just two years later, the Empire State Building went up. And the Empire State Building, everyone knows this building. It's incredibly iconic. It's, it is New York City. That building is 102 stories high. And when it was built, it was um, 1,250 feet high. And it had the, it actually, at the time, they used to actually dock airships airships at the top of it and um, it, there's some really iconic photographs from, of this building going back over the ages and it took a full four decades 41 years um, in the number one spot and if, you've got to also remember that the Empire State Building was built during the uh, the Great Depression so it's quite incredible that they managed to build this tower despite the fact what was going on around it 
but for 40 years it stood as the tallest building until the Twin Towers, the Twin Towers that were demolished in the 9-11 attacks 21 years ago today. Um, those Twin Towers, when they went up, they were very, very different. Whereas the Empire State Building kind of tapers as it goes up and it's, you know, thins out as you go higher. The Twin Towers were just these two monolithic blocks that just stood 102 floors, each floor one acre in area. And uh, all 102 floors right up to the top. So really, really incredible. And I spent a lot of time in that, in those towers. I like uh, that time that I visited America back when I was a teenager, we went and we went to the top of, the, of both the Empire State Building and the Twin Towers. The Twin Towers were much more impressive because you could actually walk to the glass in the in the observatory deck and put your head to the glass and look straight down and you know i had seen that you know what it looked like to be in a hotel room 36 stories up imagine being 110 stories up in the twin towers it was just incredible and you're looking down on 40 and 50 story buildings you're looking they they're like miles below you and so it was so such an impression it made um the next building two years later chicago retook the um the title of world's tallest tower the home of the world's tallest tower and that was with the what was called back then the sears tower of chicago and that was about a hundred feet taller and it had the same number of floors as i recall but it just was slightly taller in the way it was built and that tower stood for about 15 more years as the tallest building in the world until the actual tallest building in the world was taken. The, the title was taken from America, from North America, and it moved to Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. And that was with the Petronas Towers in 1998, the construction of them. Now, I was in Kuala Lumpur just after those buildings were completed to go and see them and really impressive buildings but they're actually more like the uh, Empire State Building insofar as they taper as they go up and so it didn't have the same impression as the Twin Towers did. Then in 2004 the uh, tower in Taiwan Taipei 101 was built and that took the tallest building in the world title and so Taiwan held it for five more years until the current winner and the one everyone knows, it's so recognizable, the Burj Khalifa, Khalifa in Dubai. Now the Burj Khalifa, when it was under construction, was going to be called the Burj Dubai. But what actually happened was the Burj Khalifa, <laughs> the tower, they ran out of money before the building was completed. And this was in the middle of the, uh, of the, of the crash, the financial crash following 2008. And so I can remember being in Dubai when this building was under construction. And even when it was only halfway built, at half its height, it was taller than the Empire State Building in New York City. So it is truly magnificent in terms of its height. And um, at 2,800 feet high is more than double the height that the Twin Towers were in New York City. So it is unlikely to be passed for, for quite some time. So let's just leave aside the history there. I just, that was a little, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole there and that is because of my own 
teenage obsession with this. It still stuck with me until today. All right, let's leave aside the history now for a little bit and talk about the economics and the ego that is required to build uh, a high-rise building. And you only have to look at the locations around the world that all of these towers, and I've just listed off some of them. So New York, Chicago, we've got Kuala Lumpur, we've got Taipei, and we've got Dubai. Now, in addition to that, there is a load of other towers that are built in Shanghai, um, in Hong Kong, you've got Beijing. Um, I mean, basically, any city that is a major financial hub tends to have super tall, high-rise buildings. And so it's the big, important financial centers around the world that have them. London, London has the Shard, which is a pretty impressive building as well. New York obviously has its history. Chicago has its history. And then Dubai, the current holder. Shanghai uh, has a number of towers that are very close in height to the Burj Khalifa. And in fact, they're not as tall as the Burj Khalifa, but they're much larger in terms of the amount of usable floor area inside. And that is because they're more rectangular in shape. They don't taper as they go up. So the big cities attract the high buildings, and that is because of the economics, right? Well, yes and no. This is where it kind of diverges a bit, and it's because the, I mean, obviously, the higher the cost of the land, the more it makes sense to, to go up and the greater the justification for building taller and taller. And that is why New York was the building center for all of these tall buildings, because the cost of land in New York became so expensive that it only made economic sense to build as tall as you could go. But there's also an element of ego here, and that is because, I mean, in reality, once you go above 50 stories, the cost starts to multiply exponentially, okay? So it is not a simple fact that if it costs, you know, 10 to build 10 stories, then it costs 50 to build 50 stories, and it costs 100 to build 100 stories. That's not how it works. It, it costs 10 to build 10 stories. It might cost you 60 or 70 to build 50 stories, but it'll cost you three or four hundred to build a hundred stories. So the costs really do magnify very, very quickly. And for that reason, the, the prices that you can command for super tall buildings, that is one of the reasons why they are viable. Um, you could not build a super tall building and sell the, sell the apartments or sell the offices at reasonable prices. It just would not make any economic sense because the construction cost would be just so great. They still are not sure whether uh, the Burj Khalifa actually makes any money in terms of the cost of building it. Now, there is the fact that it is this huge tourist uh, symbol and icon for Dubai and stuff, and it attracts a lot of people. So because of that, you could probably say that um, it does make economic sense, but not necessarily the asset itself, maybe the wider impact that it has in the area. But the in New York City, for example, these, these tall buildings, like they have these super slender towers on a, in an area called Billionaire's Row. And these towers, they command prices of like 100 million for an apartment. And it's only because there are people that are willing and able to pay that kind of money 
that these towers actually made any sense to construct. They actually don't make economic sense below that figure. Um, you cannot sell them for the cheaper um, for the cheaper prices. Now, an 80-story social welfare tower, clearly that is just not going to work if these economics are the reality. And so it's probably an awful lot better to go and build, say, two 40-story buildings, or when it comes to, say, social welfare, you would build four 20-story towers. They will, four 20-story towers, including land, will be much, much cheaper than one 80-story building, just because of the economics. So why do we build, why do we, why do tall, super tall buildings, why do they get built? Well, the simple answer is their ego. The, the ego of the developers that build them tends to be a, big, a driving force. If you look at, let's have a look at the biggest ego on the planet, we'll say, Donald Trump. Um, his tower in New York City, the Trump Tower as it's called, um, built way back in the 1980s. Um, I can remember back then he wasn't this presidential sort of figure and politically divisive figure and stuff. He was actually somebody that I kind of thought, wow, you know, impressive guy. He's built this big, huge skyscraper. And I went to see the Trump Tower back in the 80s and it was an impressive building. But what was really, I just, because I studied it so carefully and all of the heights and stuff as I was getting kind of obsessed, I realized that the, he claims the Trump Tower is 68 stories and that he lives in the top three, um, you know, 68, 67 and 66th floors. The reality is it's only a 58 story building and he created out of thin air 10 extra floors just as a kind of a marketing bump. And so when you're talking about, you know, buying a tower or buying a, a penthouse or buying a, a high level apartment, he was able to say, oh, yeah, you can have the 65th floor just below my my penthouse. And that sounded great to those guys. But the reality is they were only going to be living on the 55th floor, but it didn't sound as exclusive. And so obviously high rise equals exclusivity in the eyes of a lot of these people with ego. Now, the accolade world's tallest um, is a huge symbol and uh, and it attracts the big developers and it also attracts the big cities because the cities want to be the the holder of these um, of these kind of iconic names and it brings in huge tourist uh, numbers and stuff like that. But there's also the economics and the ego do not always work. And um, a good example of that is you only have to look at the, the attempt. Like with all of the money they have, Saudi Arabia has been unable to construct the tallest building in the world. They should have been able to build they were going to build what was known as what is called the Jeddah Tower. Now, the Jeddah Tower, the idea behind the Jeddah Tower is to take the first place from Dubai. Um, the Saudis don't like to be surpassed by anyone in the Middle East. And um, the fact that the 828 meter Burj Khalifa Tower is there, they thought, OK, we'll build a one kilometer high tower in Jeddah and it'll be called the Jeddah Tower. And that building started under construction and it's impressive if you look at the drawings and stuff, but it has stopped for about the last three years now. It has not moved one floor. Construction, it, it's a big construction site. It's, 
it's about one third built and there's no sign of anything happening on that and it looks like that project will just be abandoned and that is because the economics are just so massive that it kind of makes no sense and I saw it myself I lived in Doha um, in Qatar for 18 months and when I lived there I actually signed a lease for 12 months in a, uh, a tall building called the Kempinski Residence. And it's a 62 story building. And I lived for one whole year in room 4702, which is on the 47th floor. And uh, by the way, I absolutely loved it. It was a fabulous place to live. But um, was it necessary to build a 62 floor building in Doha? No, of course not. As I looked out, my windows from up in that tower i looked down on plots of land all over the place that were just literally sand left there since the the roads had been built on top of the desert and so if you looked and if you looked further out you could see the desert extended miles into the distance so there was absolutely no economic need for those towers to be built and um, it was pure ego you know that would drive it and as I walked around Doha at night, I used to go out running in the evening because it was so hot during the day. And I would do this run. And I can remember walk, running by all of these towers that were kind of 50, 60 stories tall. Uh, well, actually, probably more like 40, 50, because the Kempinski Tower was the tallest in, in Doha. And I can remember noticing that there wasn't a single light on in these 30 and 40 story buildings. They were built for ego. But there was absolutely nobody there to rent a floor. There was nobody living in them. And they were just simply a big icon for the owner to be able to say, look at my tower. And there was actually nobody living in it, nobody paying him rent, none of this. So economically, it made absolutely no sense at all. And I think it probably dawned in Saudi that the Jeddah Tower, that was going to be something like 200 floors and one kilometer tall, that it would be just this huge economic nightmare because it would be the tallest building, yes, but there wouldn't be anyone living in it. And uh, you would have a load of empty floors, basically. And so you'd have the tallest concrete and steel sort of structure in the world, but nobody lives in it. And therefore, is, is there any point? It's not like New York City where, you know, these towers kind of are occupied because there's massive populations living there. So... Getting back to the point, you know, making it really clear, these towers, they sat empty for years. And I, could, I used to remember kind of thinking to myself, what's the point of building these towers? But it was pure ego. And so let's have a look now at the lower end of the spectrum. Okay, the super tall stuff doesn't make sense in big cities unless they can command massive, massive prices. And then when you go to other cities where it's pure ego, they often don't make sense. There's, there's not the economic need for them. But when you get to the kind of the lower levels, when you are building at say 40 to 45 floors, the economics start to make sense. And um, if you look at the construction of 10 floors, um, if you look at the construction of 10 floors and the construction of 40 floors, like there is an increase, but it is not an increase that would make you decide not to go ahead with the construction project. If you can build 10 or 20 apartments on a site and you have the option of building 200, if you can get that financed, 
it starts to stack up and it makes a bit of sense. Now, more important though is the actual street level economics. And that's because when you cluster tall buildings together, it starts to really make a, you know, an area of the city work from a population point of view. You see, you get these dense pockets of um, where people are living and suddenly a subway system or a bus system really starts to make sense because the volumes of people that can go there um, in one single stop of the train or whatever. Um, it also makes walking to work. Places like Singapore are very, very walkable because people live in these towers. They go down to the street, they cross the street and they work in the building across the street. Schools are nearby. They can cluster all of these things. So it becomes a very walkable city. And retail centers, they have a good population living around them. And therefore, it also stacks up economically. Now, if you look, have a look at cities that have built high-rise, it does make a lot of sense also because there's fewer cars needed on the roads. If you live in a place like New York City, a lot of people just would not bother buying a car because the the, the transport system is just so strong. London is the same. I lived in London for a little over a year and in that time I did not own a car. I could rent one or I could kind of, you know, use a uh, one of those kind of sh car sharing schemes anytime I wanted, but I rarely needed one because you could jump on a bus or you could jump on a subway or the tube as they call it. All of that stuff made a lot of sense. So it's been known for about a hundred years that it makes sense to go and build high rise in cities. And it actually goes back to a French architect called Le Corbusier, who I actually had to study way back in college. And in 1924, so we're coming up on a hundred years ago, he came up with a plan called the Radiant City. And what he did was he put all of this, these clustered, these kind of uh, tall buildings up to 200 meters tall. And they were surrounded by beautiful parkland and stuff. And the idea was that people live in the towers and they have these beautiful views and stuff, but then they have beautiful parkland to enjoy. And it meant that you didn't have these small kind of streets that were you know, narrow and packed with people and stuff. You actually had like parkland. So in terms of an idea, it was a great idea and it was well received internationally, but it didn't actually ever get built. Um, but it did influence a lot of city designers around the world, including here in Dublin, although the result is seen by most people as a total disaster. If you go back to the 1960s, so a good you know 30 years on from Le Corbusier's suggestion, the Ballymun Flats were built here in Dublin. And the Ballymun Flats were built by Dublin Corporation and they were social welfare. There were blocks of flats that were built. And there was 36 blocks built in all, but the, what was most iconic and most known for, by Dubliners was the seven tower blocks that they built that were 15 stories in height. And it was all for social welfare. And what they did, they built this parkland area, but they never completed out the development as it was supposed to be. There was supposed to be lots of uh, commercial cent, you know, areas and things like that, and it didn't work. And in the end, there was an awful lot of social problems, drug problems, and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and so it ended up, those towers were torn down in the early 2000s. And whilst there was a, a good deal of pride from the people who lived there, um, there was terrible 
issues with it. Like there was elevators that got broken in those towers and people had to go up 15 stories to get to the top floor. There was people bringing horses up the staircase to their apartments because kids wanted to own horses, even though they were living in a tower block. And there's all this kind of great photographs from the Ballymun Towers. But if you just look at it in, as, a, as a design, it was pretty much seen as a, as a complete failure. And it also changed attitudes. Certainly in my city here of Dublin, it massively changed attitudes. And that's something I want to just finish on is attitudes towards high-rise buildings. And they vary all over the world. In some cities, high-rise is seen as very, very desirable. And the rich and famous who can afford to kind of buy the penthouses in these tall buildings, they all go and do that. So if you go to Dubai, like the Burj Khalifa, it's got the, the Giorgio Armani Hotel in it. And there is these amazing apartments that cost an absolute fortune to buy. In New York City, you have these super slim towers that they're built. Um, they, I mean, these super slim towers are incredible works of engineering and architecture. I think the tallest one is has a, a, a tallness ratio of 1 to 27, I think it is. So for every one wide it is, it's 27 high. And, uh, and the other ones then are slightly lower than that, like 22 and 17 or 19 or something like that. But the ratios, these are incredibly tall buildings and they would not be possible. They just simply do not work economically except for the fact that they were able to sell these apartments, these penthouses for over $100 million. And they have, you know, these celebrity agents uh, like Ryan Serhant uh, making videos um, of the top floor building. And he was walking around in the suit talking about this $130 million apartment. And it'd be interesting to see whether it actually sells or not because I don't know too many people that can afford $130 million. Um, but what's incredible is that whole street is called Billionaire's Row. And whereas a lot of people you know, who can afford that like the idea of living on Billionaire's Row, there's also big pushback from the other people living in New York that think it's tasteless, and uh, completely elitist and that they've gone and they've built these towers that are not for the, the general public and therefore they're kind of they're for all of these wealthy people that don't even live in them they buy them because they have the money they're from switzerland or from the middle east or whatever and so there's a bit of a pushback against that now other parts of the world obviously tall buildings are still seen as this kind of status symbol and that your city has arrived so hong kong london new york Singapore, Shanghai, all of those places, they have that cachet. But if there's a strong attitude against those high-rise buildings in certain cities now where they're starting to be viewed as elitist. And, um, you know, the, the old saying about the ivory tower. And so it makes the area unaffordable and actually drives up prices for the people who would have been, you know, living there traditionally. Now, here at home, there was a very strong backlash against high-rise, and I think it was probably a consequence of the Ballymun flats that were built. And I know that because as I studied architecture, I found it really, really difficult to find anyone to kind of support the idea of high-rise. 
Now, I've always been pro high-rise because of my, uh, I suppose, obsession with, with it from, from back when I was a teenager. But when I was in college, I actually designed a scheme. We were given a project to design the where the Tara Street DART station is. And uh, in the end, it's I think it's where Ulster Bank, it's Georgia, what's it called? Um, there's a name, for, anyway, I can't remember right now, but... There is a building, a set of, a, a series of buildings. They're towers of kind of seven towers. And I think they're kind of 12 and 13 stories or whatever it is. And those towers that Ulster Bank is, it's their headquarters there. I, I had designed a scheme for that particular location. And I put in 30 story buildings and 40 story buildings. And uh, anyway, my, my scheme was completely slated by the lecturers in the college. They were completely against it. And I knew then that the likelihood that I was going to be building skyscrapers in my hometown was very, very unlikely. Certainly it was back in the 2000s and the 1990s and stuff. Now we can go, things, attitudes have started to change. We can actually now go to seven or eight floors. So woo. But what was really interesting is not so long ago, one of the big names in the Irish uh, property sector, Johnny Ronan, he put forward a scheme for the Docklands and he proposed a 45-storey residential tower. And it actually looked really, really good, uh, in my opinion anyway. Uh, but it was, again, the critics came out and started to slate it. And I'm just hoping that the economic requirement or the imperative now will actually start to overshadow the critics. The critics, I think, have become elitist. And they're against anything that, you know, that involves building tall. And of course, they don't want to see the, the Georgian quarter, you know, the old parts of the city destroyed. And I totally agree. They should be protected. But I think there are clusters in new parts of the city, like the Docklands area, where you could build 30 and 40 story buildings in a cluster. And it would make a lot of sense in the same way as it has made a sense in other cities around the world. As I said already, economically speaking if you can build 200 apartments on a site where it's currently designed for 40 doesn't it make more sense to go up that extra bit of height and bring the well introduce more living uh, opportunity to a greater number of people and bring hopefully bring the prices down i mean if you can just um, on a unit basis bring down the cost hopefully it would make economic sense and for those of you who have never experienced living at high rise and are thinking that you wouldn't like it, I can personally vouch for it. I mean, having spent a year living in the Kempinski Tower in room 4702, the only downside was having to take the elevator up and down every day because you would just would not go up 47 stories uh, of a tower. But the views in the evening when, when the sun went down and you were looking out on the city and the lights and stuff like that, it was incredibly inspiring. And then first thing in the morning when I'd wake up, pull open those curtains and the view out over, you know, from the 47th floor, just incredible. All right, guys, hope you found this one useful. Any thoughts, please leave a comment or send me a DM. And until next time, stay curious. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you enjoyed this episode or found it useful, please leave a review over on iTunes. Or if you're watching on YouTube, please just like and subscribe to the channel. 
If you have any questions you'd like to ask me for future videos or whatever, you can join my Facebook group. It's called Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, look me up on social. I'm, uh, my handle is Gavin J. Gallagher, and you can stay up to date on all the projects I'm working on and various things using my blog, which is GavinJGallagher.com. That's all for now. I'll see you guys next week.